Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Let's start tonight with a few PSAs of, of a sort. First, a reminder that if you haven't yet gotten your flu shot, that you need to do that soon. I got mine the other day while I was getting a physical. Remember that vaccines not only help you not to get sick, but also those around you, especially those who may not be able to get a vaccine for a legitimate medical reason. So for instance, some people who are immunocompromised, uh, some people who are allergic to something in the um, vaccine itself, uh, legitimately, I would like to stress, um, you're helping those people as well. Um, you're also helping people who just refuse to get the vaccine, but um, <laughs> I'm a little bit less charitable in my feelings on those people. Um, but I think it's really important for people who can get it to get it in order to help those who can't. Especially, um, for instance, also newborns who just aren't big enough yet to get it. So definitely want to go out and get your flu shot. Um, it's pretty easy to get. It's all over the place. You can see all sorts of places are advertising them. Um, obviously you want to continue to, uh, wear a mask and be, uh, as far away from people for as much time as possible. Uh, so if you're going to get one, do remember to maintain, uh, your social distancing and mask wearing and, uh, hand washing and everything, um, which we'll talk about actually, uh, right now. <laughs> so the second PSA is that new research suggests that the key to keeping COVID-19 away is in part to wash masks daily, preferably in the washing machine. And I know that this can be a challenge. It's a challenge for me. I don't have that many masks. Um, but of course, I don't go anywhere. <laughs> so um, I'm mostly doing my quarantining by quarantining. Um, and so uh, if you do have to go out every day, though, um, you know, if you can just buy a second pack, if it's possible, of um, face masks so that you can keep them washed, that's going to be your best bet. And of course, speaking of washing, uh, actually, before we talk about that, uh, one of the reasons why masks are so essential, uh, especially in indoor situations, is that we know, and the CDC has finally joined us in acknowledging the fact that COVID-19 can be spread in aerosols. And so those are the smaller particles that can linger in the air, especially in poorly ventilated enclosed areas. And hand washing is still very important. Uh, there was another recent report that suggests that the virus can last for up to nine hours on a person's skin. And so we want to be really careful to both be wearing masks and washing our hands and trying not to touch our faces as much as possible. But of course, uh, that is a harder thing to do. So hand washing is the best way to allow that to go forward. 
Okay. Thirdly tonight, if you want to see the planet Mars, if you've ever had a hankering to really see it, tonight is one of the best times to do it. And so Mars is currently at its closest to the Earth this month. And so apparently it won't be this close again for another 30 years. So pop out to the backyard with a pair of binoculars if you have them um, and check it out. Okay, so our first story is going to be a bit of a congratulations. Despite the uh, known issues with the Nobel Prize, which apparently it's trying to do a little bit better about this year, um, I'd like to give a shout out to Emanuela Chapantier and Jennifer Dudna uh, for winning the Nobel in Chemistry for their key contributions to the development of the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing system. Now, because it's the Nobel and you can't ever have a Nobel without controversy, uh, there's a little bit of controversy about this, but it's not because it's two women, blessedly, which is very exciting. Uh, it's because their discoveries are considered to be more on the biology side rather than the chemistry side. They're really in the sort of territory of bio, biochemistry. Um, and so the chemists are a little bit miffed because they, uh, don't think that it really belongs in the chemistry uh, category. However, there is no doubt amongst most of their colleagues, I think pretty much all of their colleagues, that they absolutely deserve the Nobel. Um, and so Charpentier and Dudna found two important things. First, that Cas9 did not need a complicated process of making matching RNAs that were then cut into smaller pieces, but that a shorter RNA strand, which was engineered to loop back on itself and form a double helix, could work. And this greatly simplified the original mechanism. Secondly, they found that changing the sequence of the RNA Cas9 was referencing was enough to reprogram it from its use as protection against viruses in the original bacteria to a tool that could be used to edit any DNA sequence. And so basically, if you uh, don't remember, CRISPR-Cas9 is a way to uh, be able to have a tool that looks at a um a series of uh, DNA that it has, or RNA, I should say, um, that it has in the CRISPR system. Um, I'm I'm very much oversimplifying this, uh, so please don't take this as what's perfectly going on. But basically, uh, the way this works is that there's a reference uh, RNA sequence that is contained in the CRISPR-Cas9 um tool and it actually goes and looks for that in the organism and cuts it out and uh then you have cut out that sequence and then um i think in some places they then i think it basically it's just cutting it out i'm sorry i'm forgetting offhand um or if it actually replaces it with a different set of um nucleotides, but I'm pretty sure it just cuts it out. Um, and so that's how you get 
Um, it's called, uh, basically the Cas9 is considered molecular scissors. Um, and so what's really great about their research is that one of the things that was really cool is that they absolutely knew what they had found. Um, sometimes you don't quite know how important this is going to be, but they were like, nope, this is important. Uh, they wrote in their key paper that this work, quote, highlights the potential to exploit the system for RNA programmable genome editing. And so, yes, that is very exciting. And again, this is the first time that two women have received the prize without a male colleague. So that is very exciting because uh, the Nobels have a uh, woman problem. Um, they have traditionally only included women with male colleagues. Um, it's very rare for a woman to win a science-based Nobel on their own. Um, and so this is very exciting. Um, they also have other issues, but that's for another day. So let's move on now and talk about our actual kind of normal stories for the evening. So first we are going to talk about balancing rocks and what they can tell us about earthquakes and new, potentially nuclear energy sites. So balancing rocks are basically large rocks that are usually very finely balanced, often on a sort of ludicrously small point um, or otherwise just clearly uh, positioned so that if there was a large enough tremble that they would fall. And so they survive, even though there may be earthquake activity nearby, which is what we're going to be talking about. And so it turns out that you can calculate uh, the forces that would be used to topple the um, balancing stones, and that can be used as a guide for how strong the earthquakes in the area have been, since basically they have to have been less energetic than one that would have toppled the balancing stone. And so by looking at data from what the researchers call PBRs, or precariously balanced rocks, within California, Researchers at the Imperial College London have developed a new technique to boost hazard estimates of large earthquakes by up to 49%. And so hazard models for earthquakes basically estimate the likelihood of a future earthquake in the region. And so this both helps engineers who need to decide how strong and reinforced bridges, dams, and buildings in the area should be, and it also obviously informs earthquake insurance prices, because if you're going to build a building on top of the San Andreas Fault, for instance, uh, you're going to pay more for that. <laughs> uh, let's be perfectly honest in insurance than you would if you built it in the middle of an area that is very seismically stable. Um, and that makes sense because you're building as much more likely to fall down if it's in a seismically active area. Um, so that's one of the, you know, that's one of the places where that insurance differential is actually warranted. <laughs> okay. And so lead author Anna Rude 
from Imperial's Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering said, This new approach could help us work out which areas are most likely to experience a major earthquake. PBRs act like inverse seismometers by capturing regional seismic history that we weren't around to see and tell us the upper limit of past earthquake shakes simply by not toppling. By tapping into this, we provide uniquely valuable data on the rates of rare, large-magnitude earthquakes. And so the paper published in AGU Advances, um, which is the uh, American Geological um, Union, the research suggests that adding data from PBRs could add knowledge about areas that have long-period earthquakes. And so those are earthquakes that only happen in periods basically between 10,000 and a million years. And so the researchers used a method that counts cosmic rays, generate cosmic ray generated atoms in the PBRs, as well as digitally modeling PBR earthquake interactions to develop a new method that can be integrated with existing models to fine tune their precision. And so they studied PBRs around the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant in coastal California, determining the fragility, how much force is needed to topple the fragment, and the age of the PBRs. And so again, they used those cosmic rays. They took that cosmic ray data um, and interpreted it using a technique called, called cosmogenic surface exposure dating. And so in that, you count the number of rare beryllium atoms that were formed in the rocks by long-term exposure to cosmic rays in order to determine how long the rock has been in its current position. They then used 3D modeling of the rocks in order to calculate how much shaking would be required to topple them. They compared this data with existing hazard estimates to boost the efficacy. And finding, they found that combining the two types of data not only reduced uncertainty by 49% when calculating earthquake hazard estimates, but it actually also reduced the average size of earthquake estimates to happen once every 10,000 years by 27%, and found that PBRs can last in their current configuration for twice as long as previously thought. So not only did they find out that the PBRs can stay where they are for longer than they thought, they also found that um, when a earthquake is going to happen every twenty, every ten thousand years, the the actual um, percentage of whether or not that's going to happen went down by twenty seven percent. Study co-author Dr. Dylan Rude. Um, of Imperial's Department of Earth Science and Engineering said, we're teetering on the edge of a breakthrough in the science of earthquake forecasting. Our rock clock techniques have the potential to save huge costs in seismic engineering, and we see them being used broadly to test and update site-specific hazard estimates for earthquake-prone areas specifically in coastal regions where the controlling seismic sources are offshore faults whose movements are inherently more difficult to investigate. And so the team is now looking at Southern California, 
which of course combines deadly earthquakes with dense populations to create a serious recipe for disaster. Um, so of course, Southern California has the San Andreas Fault and it has a huge amount of people living in the area. Uh, not a great combination. <laughs> uh, and so Anna Rude notes, uh, they're a husband and wife team. Um, that's why I keep having to refer to them with their full names. Um, we're now looking at PBRs near major earthquake faults, like the San Andreas Fault near Los Angeles. We're also looking at how to pinpoint which data, whether it be fault slip rates or choice of ground shaking equations, are skewing the results in the original hazard models. This way, we can improve scientists' understanding of big earthquakes even more. And so in addition, uh, we did talk about a another use for this, which is that uh, it could be used to better situate nuclear power plants and storage facilities, basically by finding areas with low seismic activity. Because, of course, the less activity, the better. Uh, as we saw, the results of the combination of seismic activity uh, and a nuclear power plant during the Fukushima disaster uh, several years ago. And so um, obviously nuclear power plants and earthquakes are a bad combination. So you want to find places that are the least seismically active uh, that are, you know, obviously other parameters have to come into uh, play, but you want to find the space within where you can situate it to be in the most stable of the areas. Um, and so that's really helpful because again, it's not good to <laughs> combine uh, nuclear materials and earthquakes. Um, just don't do it. <laughs> um, but let's talk a little bit more about earthquakes. Uh, let's switch to a different topic, however. New research gives us insight into how fluids affect faults and how they may have a role in causing earthquake swarms. So earthquake swarms are bursts of small earthquakes that happen in a specific area, usually around either a vertical or a horizontal line, for up to a week. Now, often they're not even noticed by people in the area, though one in August near the southern end of, again, the San Andreas Fault, uh, produced a magnitude 4.6 trembler, uh, strong enough to be felt by citizens in the surrounding cities. And so faults generally actually have two areas. So there is the surface fault that we all typically think about, which will move along for a while and then stick and deform and build up stresses and then eventually will cause a major earthquake when the tension becomes too much. But there's also a deeper layer along the fault where there is a sort of a, that part sort of creeps forward even if the upper layer is actually pretty much locked in place. And so it continues to move slowly along cracks in the crust, in the earth's crust even again as the fault above is locked. And now this isn't huge movement. We're talking about like an inch a year or something like that. 
So uh, researchers have actually long wondered what controls this boundary, how it moves, and its relationship with big earthquakes. One of the big questions has been how fluid and pressure migrate along faults and how that causes the faults to slip. A new physics simulator developed by Stanford University geophysicist Eric Dunham and his colleagues shows how fluids ascending in a staccato matter, in a staccato matter, so um, they basically are moving uh, kind of in fits and starts in a way, uh, eventually weakens the faults. In the decades leading up to a big earthquake, the fluids propel the boundary or locking depth a mile or two toward the surface. And so publishing in the journal Nature Communications, the research suggests that as pulses of high pressure fluids draw closer to the surface, they trigger those earthquake swarms. Now each swarm comes with its own aftershock sequence. As earthquakes swarm, often a involves migration of these events along a fault in some direction, horizontally or vertically, explains Dunham, who is the senior author of the paper and an associate professor of geophysics at Stanford, Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. The simulator maps out the migration's mechanisms. And so what makes this model unique is that it not only looks at the traditional frictional causes of unlocking faults, but adds in the interactions between fluid and pressure in the fault zone. They did this with a simplified two-dimensional model of a fault such as the San Andreas, which cuts vertically through the entire crust. Through computational modeling, we were able to tease out some of the root causes for fault behavior, said lead author Wei Qiang Zhu, a graduate student in geophysics at Stanford. We found the ebb and flow of pressure around a fault may play an even bigger role than friction in dictating its strength. Now, all faults are saturated with fluids, mostly water in a state that is somewhere between a liquid and a gas. Some of these fluids come from deeper in the earth and some seep down from rainfall or in recent years are injected into the earth by those working on oil gas, or geothermal projects. Increases in the pressure of that fluid can push out on the walls of the fault and make it easier for the fault to slide, Dunham said. Or if the pressure decreases, that creates a suction that pulls the water together and inhibits sliding. Rocks on Earth from fault zones have revealed cracks, mineral-filled veins, and other signs that pressure fluctuates in large degree during and between big quakes. And as noted, the role of fracking has given them new insight into this role of fluids. They have actually been able to prove that fracking led to a frightening increase in earthquakes across parts of Oklahoma since 2009. They've also been able to see that earthquake swarms migrate at different speeds depending on the environment in which they form. Now, modeling, unfortunately, can't yet tell us why this is happening, um, but it does show that, for instance, the uh, swarms are different along, say, the San Andreas Fault versus a fault that is involved in um, 
that is involved in volcanic matter, for instance. And so the new work actually builds on a model of vaults sort of as valves. And this was first proposed by geologists in the 1990s. The idea is that fluids ascend along faults intermittently, even if those fluids are being released or injected at a steady, constant rate, Dunham explained. Over the decades or millennia between large earthquakes, mineral deposition and other chemical processes seal the fault zone. Sealing the fault valve allows fluids to accumulate and build up pressure, which weakens the fault and forces it to slip. Sometimes this has a minimal impact on the ground at the surface, but it is still enough to create a fissure that allows fluids to continue to rise toward the surface. The new model ties this movement to the phenomena of earthquake swarms. The concept of a fault valve, an intermittent release of fluids, is an old idea, Dunham said. But the occurrence of earthquake swarms in our simulations of fault valving was completely unexpected. Now, one thing to note is that this is a model for better understanding rather than predicting earthquakes. You would need way more information uh, to be put into the model. And a lot of that is basically unattainable because it's happening miles below the earth. Um, and so th that's another reason why earthquakes are so hard to predict is that there's a lot of stuff going underground that we just don't have access to. But when a simulation was run with a seal set up to develop and halt fluid migration within three or four months, the model predicted a little more than an inch of slip along the fault nearing near the locking depth over a year. This calculation closely matched patterns of slow slip events from faults in New Zealand and Japan, which gives credence to the fact that the model is actually modeling real behavior. So basically they created this idea of what a fault would do and watched it happen in the simulation. And then they compared it to real world faults that have these basic parameters as well. And so one thing that the model might be able to predict is the risk related to fracking in non-natural fault areas. The lessons that we learn about how fluid flow couples with frictional sliding are applicable to naturally occurring earthquakes, as well as induced earthquakes that are happening in oil and gas reservoirs, Durham notes. So that's really interesting. And again, anything we can do to make earthquakes easier to uh, deal with, easier to predict, easier to model is very, very, very helpful because earthquakes are really bad. Um, I know that's kind of a non-statement, but we definitely, they're definitely one of the natural disasters that we uh, struggle the most with predicting, obviously. Um, and so it's a lot easier to predict, say, a hurricane or a tornado. And uh, so, yeah, we definitely need to work on that. But uh, let us take a break for a moment to do some PSAs and some show promos. Uh, you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Please do come back after the break. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. 
By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton, so come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. We are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. So let's stick with geology, and we are going to talk for a moment about how candy has helped mathematicians to potentially solve the origin of stone forests and how they end up so spiky. So Stone forests are basically what they sound like. They're rock formations which contain assemblages of tall, spiky, tree-like rocks. They're found throughout the world, uh, but there are notable formations in China and Madagascar. Now, how these formations develop has been unknown until now. And so the new research published in the Proceedings of the Natural National Academy of Sciences not only explains 
how these formations are created via natural processes, but may also inform the manufacture of sharp-tipped structures, such as microneedles and probes used in scientific and medical activities. This work reveals a mechanism that explains how these sharply pointed rock spires, a source of wonder for centuries, come to be, says Leif Ristoff, an associate professor at New York University's current Institute of Mathematical Sciences and one of the paper's co-authors. Through a series of simulations and experiments, we show how flowing water carves ultra-sharp spikes in in landforms. So what they found was that the formations are created by dissolved solids flowing downward due to gravity, which produces natural convection flows. Interestingly, the group did not set out to originally originally to study the the stone forests. They were initially uh, using simulations and experiments to study a number of different processes that are involved in quote-unquote shaping processes, such as erosion and dissolving. We first discovered the spikes formed by dissolution when we left candy in a water tank and came back later to find a needle-like spire, he said. The grad student, first author Mac Huang, even accidentally cut himself when he was admiring the shape. This drew us into the problem, and we were very excited when we realized the connection to stone pinnacles and stone forests, which have been quite mysterious in their development. We hope our experiments tell a simple origin story behind these landforms. And so basically what they did was they combined granulated table sugar, corn syrup, and water into a mold to make blocks and single pillars of solidified or hard crack candy, basically lollipops. Uh, And so this is actually analogous to karst formations of soluble rocks. And that's what basically uh, these stone forests generally are. They're karst formations. And so the mold for the block of candy included an array of upright metal rods to shape the blocks with pores, which would make them closer to the composition of the karst. And so the candy was then placed in a tank filled with room temperature degassed water with the candy on a platform so that the dissolved sugars would be able to settle to the bottom of the tank away from the object. They then left the object in the tank with a camera timed to take a picture at one minute intervals. We found that the dissolving process itself generates the flows responsible for carving the spike shapes, said Ristoff. Basically, the mineral, or in our experiment, lollipop candy, serving as mock rock, dissolves and the surrounding fluid gets heavy and then flows downward due to gravity. So our mechanism doesn't require any particular flow conditions or other external or environmental circumstances. The recipe involves just dissolving into liquid and gravity. And so this suggests that the pillars are formed when submerged underwater over long timescales. Soluble materials such as limestone, dolomite, and gypsum slowly dissolve in the water. And so this mineral-rich water then sinks under the force of gravity, which slowly forms the sharp pillars. 
This simulation was done under idealized conditions, and so the team next plans to explore how things like precipitation and surface runoff, as well as potentially being buried under loose soil, might affect the formation of these impressive structures. So that is very cool. Uh, they're very pretty structures. I love I love rocks of all forms. Um, I might have mentioned that once or 100 times. Um, I am a big fan of geology and um, I have a very large collection of random rocks that I have picked up over the years. Um, and so, yeah, I am very, very much in love with rocks. Um, and I would like to eventually go and see someplace like this because it looks incredibly pretty. All right, let us continue to talk basically about rocks, uh, we're going to talk about stone tools now. And so a new study suggests that early hominids used fire as far back as 300,000 years ago to help them create customized stone tools. Researchers led by Felipe Natalio from the Weissman Institute of Science in Israel published a paper in Nature Human Behavior detailing the discovery of baked flint tools found in the Kesem Cave in central Israel. These tools suggest that early hominids were able to create fire conditions that controlled the temperature in order to produce specific effects. It turns out that if you heat flint at low temperatures, and let it cool, it will then allow for better control during the process of flint napping. And so this would have allowed a tool builder to create tools for specific cutting applications. Silji Evagenth Betson, an anthropologist at the University of Bergen who wasn't involved in the study, told Gizmodo that the use of fire is currently a disputed topic. I personally think that hominids could not survive long in the cold climate of Eurasia without hot food and a warm fire, but some researchers still argue that controlled and habitual use of fire came quite late, explained Betson. If hominids in Kesem Cave were using fire 300,000 years ago as a technology and as part of their tool production strategy, it is a sign of advanced use of fire, and as such, it could also help us understand how and when hominins controlled fire and used it casually in their everyday life. Now, when we say early hominins, we're probably talking about Neanderthals. Homo sapiens had pretty much just emerged in Africa, and so they likely weren't in Israel creating these tools. In addition, several teeth have been found in the cave, which resemble those found from Neanderthals, strengthening the case for the identification of that species as the ancient fire users. However, this doesn't mean that Homo sapiens wouldn't have been able to do this, just that they weren't there at the time. Now, such toolmaking techniques had been hinted at previously, with archaeologists suggesting that toolmakers in the Levant may have employed the technique between 420,000 and 200,000 years ago, based on bits of burnt flint. Katja Duz, an anthropologist at the University of Geneva, who also is not affiliated with the new research, notes 
that the technology of fire most likely goes back at least 400,000 years, but heat treatment of stone probably required a higher technical effort, especially for flint that is very sensitive to abrupt temperature changes, she said. If the heating process isn't well mastered, the rock breaks immediately and is no longer usable. This suggests that, based on the paper, not only is this mastery very old, it's also complex. And so Natalio and his colleagues analyzed two types of flint tools from the Kesem Cave, which have been known to have had, which has been known to have fires in the ancient past. Using a spectroscopic chemical analysis paired with machine learning, they estimated the temperatures to which the flint tools had been heated. Results found that the blades were heated to 498 degrees Fahrenheit, flakes heated to as hot as 775 degrees, and that pot lids at the site reached a whopping 837 degrees Fahrenheit. This temperature differentiated differentiation was the key finding for dews. This difference also ensures that there is absolutely no doubt about the deliberate heating of stone on this site, she explained. Now it remains to be determined how these hominins proceeded to heat their block blocks on site and how they managed the different temp heating temperatures. Now, interestingly, the authors provided information about experimental archaeology that they performed. They actually heated flint in the lab to see if they could recreate the flint configurations. They explain, These preliminary napping experiments seem to support the idea that controlled heating of flint at relatively low temperatures offers a higher degree of control over flakeability and improved blade production, rendering them more suitable for specific activities. For example, higher efficiency in butchering game. Now, of course, this would have come at a price of caloric exp expenditure because obviously they would have to collect fuel for the fires. And so they suggest that the flint heating would most likely have been combined with more mundane uses like cooking for maximum efficiency. And such work shows that the toolmakers were able to plan carefully and to think ahead to be able to develop this ability to create such worked tools. Betson, for her part, was impressed by the thoroughness of the paper. The use of machine learning is an innovative method and provides new possibilities for future studies, she notes. The flint samples were heated in a controlled environment in an oven in a laboratory. This gives us a good baseline for all the heat-induced changes in the flint. So hopefully this work will support the findings uh, used by these techniques and they'll be able to do more of this in the future. Now, speaking of experimental archaeology, a new paper published in the journal Scientific Reports details an experiment conducted by a class devoted to the archaeology of food. Co-author Christine Hastorf, an archaeologist at the University of California, Berkeley, has been interested in the relationship between people and plants, especially their foodstuffs, for many years. In 1985, she co-authored a paper which examined isotopes of charred plant remains collected from inside of pots. For years, she has taught a food archaeology class at UCB. 
Her latest iteration of the class is a two-semester survey of both the ethnographic aspects of historical dietary habits, as well as archaeological methods for devising what those dietary habits were. The class was interested in recent molecular analysis of pottery, but were frustrated by the lack of a comprehensive study on the subject. Hasdorff suggested that the class could conduct a longer test themselves. The students agreed, and they developed a methodology, assigned research topics to each student, and located suppliers of grain, maize, and wheat from the same area of the Midwest, as well as receiving donated venison from deer roadkill. Hasdorff even bought a mill that she set up in her garage so that they could grind the grain themselves. They then purchased unglazed Lachamba ceramic pots. These pots are sturdy black clay cookware whose origins date back to pre-Columbian South America. The students were also given a homemade stirring stick derived from an apple tree in Hasdorff's backyard for cleaning the pots after each meal. They then proceeded to use the pots once a week for a year. Every eight weeks, they would deliberately burn the meal and take samples of the charred residue for analysis. They also took samples of the carbonized patinas that developed as the layers built up. They partnered with Richard Evershed's lab at the University of Bristol in England in order to analyze the fatty lipids which were absorbed in the clay of the cookware over time. Now, Evershed actually has a lot of experience with studying organic residues inside ceramics, but mostly things like milk products and meats. And so until this current study, his lab really hadn't looked at plant materials. And so this new study helps expand the knowledge base for this sort of analysis. Now, if you're imagining them creating delicious meals in their pots, unfortunately, that's not the case. Most of the so-called meals consisted of only six combinations of the three ingredients, with one exception. They did try to create a hominy made with maize and lime extract. However, according to Hasdorff, it was a goofy thing on, goopy thing on the stovetop, and it wasn't palatable. We never thought of putting it in our mouths. This was not part of the equation of this scientific experiment. And so the true goal was to have a simplified experiment that was more a proof of concept rather than a complex analysis using what are basically new methods. So you don't want to create complex meals when you're trying to figure out how this works, because that's not going to be helpful in the long run. Uh, you want to start with a very simplistic uh, set of analysable uh materials. We wanted to keep it simple and control the molecules, said Hastorf. You start adding salt and you're changing everything. And we wanted to keep it diagnostic. We chose the foods based on how easy it would be to distinguish the chemicals and the food from one another and how the pots would react to the isotropic and chemical values of the food. The bottom line is that maize is a carbon-4 plant and wheat is a carbon-3 plant so they're going to pattern very differently in the isotope analysis. And so they found that the charred material at the bottom of a pot provided information that the last about the last meal to be cooked in the pot. However, the patina allowed them to see not only that last meal, but other meals cooked in the pot in the past. 
This can allow them to not only figure out what was cooked in a pot, but also start to differentiate those pots based on what they were cooking in general. So you might find that one pot had beans in it and another maize, or you might find a pot that was of general use. Our data can help us better reconstruct the meals and specific ingredients that people consumed in the past, which in turn can shed light on social, political, and environmental relationships within ancient communities, said study co-author Melanie Miller, now a postdoctoral scholar at the University of Otago in New Zealand. We flung open the door for others to take this experiment to the next level and record even longer timelines in which food residues can be identified. Okay, finally tonight, let us talk about some local research. And so a team of biologists led by Craig Albertson and PhD student Shays Gilbert at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, looked at changes in cichlid, in cichlid fishes collected before a dam was closed in 1984 on the Tocantins River, and the and then 34 years later, on or in the Tucururi Reservoir in the Brazilian Amazon. And so they worked with others in Brazil and Albertson's team hypothesized that the fish would have changed in body shape due to changes in habitat and foraging behaviors as they were moving from having been in a clear flowing river to then finding themselves in a deep murky reservoir. The once historic rapids and streams that characterize the system have disappeared from the surrounding area, which in turn has affected the abundance and variety of food sources available to native fishes, they wrote in the journal Evolutionary Application. Now, cichlids are kind of a darling of the biological world because they are able to alter in as little as a single season aspects of their body shapes in order to match changes in their environment and the availability of foodstuffs. So basically what that means is that cichlids are actually able to literally change their bodies in order to better adapt to their surroundings. And so they can make changes that will allow them to be able to in just a few generations to be able to really fill in new niches or do things that they were previously unable to do based on their previous body plan. And so that's pretty remarkable. It usually takes animals a lot longer than uh, a couple of generations to be able to change their bottom body plan. Uh, and so that's, of course, something that makes them very good for research. Um, you will, if you ever look at lists of theses in uh, biology departments, not only will you see things about, for instance, various kinds of rats, you will often see uh, that there are people doing their theses, working with professors on cichlids. Uh, they're, they're very, very common <laughs> in laboratories. 
and they actually are able to make changes to their skeleton. And so they're, again, seen as a model organism for how animals in general may adapt to major anthropogenic environmental changes, such as damming what was once a beautiful wild uh, river. Um, I have feelings about dams, as you can tell. Um, I, I have a lot of feelings. Some of them are conflicted because obviously um, using uh, water power, uh, hydroelectric power is better than using, for instance, coal and oil. But obviously dams are a big uh, change to the environment that we are uh, placing upon the earth rather than allowing it to develop uh Naturally, you know, there's a big difference between a beaver dam and Hoover dam. But anyways, that's not what we're talking about tonight. <laughs> what they did was they used a technique called geometric morphometrics, uh, which is basically a fancy way of saying that they uh, traced the way that different parts of the fish uh, are uh, laid out in geometric terms. And so the team evaluated changes to six species across five genera from large fish-eating species all the way down to small opportunistic omnivores, which represent the breadth of native varieties and body shapes. They used specimens from fish preserved before 1980 housed at the Instituto Nacional de Pesquisas de la Amazonia fish collection, as well as even older specimens in the Museo de Zoologia de Universidade de Sao Paulo. Um, my Portuguese is basically non-existent, uh, so excuse the mispronunciations. Albertson explains, our overarching hypothesis is that the damming of the Tecantins and subsequent formation of the Tucururi reservoir has induced shifts in habitat and foraging behavior and that the anatomy of resident cichlid populations has changed in ways that allow them to adapt to this novel environmental conditions. This study represents a first step toward assessing this hypothesis. And basically they found what they were looking for. Changes to the anatomy of the head, fin, and body shape most closely associated with adaptations to new environments. So again, basically, they found that the animals had actually literally gone through this evolutionary process pretty much in fast forward of being able to change from things that were adapted to a river environment to things that were able to be uh, successful in a reservoir environment um, really, really quickly. And so Gilbert notes, was anything surprising? Yes. While we expected to see changes in generalist species, those that are already predisposed toward living in a variety of habitat, we were surprised to see shape changes in the specialists as well. Evolving to specialize on a particular prey type or habitat can provide a competitive advantage in the near term, but it can also be an evolutionary dead end in the face of a major environmental change. And so it is quite nice to see that there are at least some species out there that are able to adapt to changes in the environment wrought by humans. 
Now, of course, this is a species that is predisposed to these kinds of changes. And so that is definitely something that not all species are a bit are able to do. Um, though I did actually just read a little bit of a snippet of a paper that um, I'm a little bit dubious about. I need to read the full paper um, because everything, unfortunately, involved with the U.S. government these days is suspect. Um, but researchers had been proposing that uh, we needed to put in place protections for wolverines, which we talked about just the other day, um, because, you know, they're used to snowy conditions. And as climate change keeps moving along, uh, those snowy conditions are potentially going to get harder to find. Um, but they actually withdrew the uh, protection uh, application because they said that it turns out that wolverines are actually better equipped to be able to uh, change their uh, habits to be able to accommodate uh, other um, environments that are less snowy, that are, you know, they're basically more adaptable than we thought they were. Um, but again... Who knows in this current climate, um, because science has been so suppressed, uh, and so distorted and so politicized in this administration that it's really hard to trust anything these days that comes from an official government body associated with the U.S. government. Um, if there are any political appointees in the, uh, organization, it's really hard to trust anything that they have to say. Um, though there is a sliver of good news, uh, in the age of COVID, uh, there is a silver lining, which is that, uh, polling for, uh, people's interest in seeing more money devoted to science has actually gone up, uh, because obviously people who are, uh, working on problems like COVID and things like that are suddenly being put in the spotlight and people are starting to remember why science is important and why scientists are important. And so I'm very excited about that because obviously that is something that is very close to my heart. Um, and so I'm very happy to see that people are kind of turning the corner and coming back into the fold of the understanding that science is important um, and that scientists are the best people to do said science and not laymen. Um, so that is very exciting. All right. That is all for tonight. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.